is Tony. And this is Matt. And this is What Did We Miss, the podcast where we explore our pop culture blind spots one episode at a time. And I'm back, baby. This is three in a row. Well, yeah, but like I think I'm I'm I think that makes it official. I think uh I think my paternity leave has has ended and I'm I'm back to work at the old podcast. Nice. Yeah. I, you know, I obviously missed having you here with the regular frequency. There are definitely moments where it's like, oh, I wish Tony was here and uh, especially editing stuff and uh, to save my butt <laughs> uh, like you usually do. Um, but it's great to have you back and to kind of uh, start steering the ship together. Yeah, yeah, it's good to be back. But, um, you know, I, I enjoyed listening uh, like... Uh, a civilian hearing hearing stuff cold uh, as it comes out uh, uh-huh. every other Wednesday. Uh, you did a great job. I appreciate you picking up the slack while I was uh, kind of uh, holding things down here on the home front. Thanks. Yeah. So what have you been up to? Let's do some quick catch up. What uh, what have we been consuming? I've been, I mean, I've, I've been reading a lot, a lot of comics. Uh, and I yeah. think I mentioned this before, but I... I started, I went back to Brian Michael Bendis's run of the Avengers, which has started in 2000, okay. 2004. And I was like, I, I don't know if I've ever read the, his run in its entirety. And subsequently, I've read every single Avengers comic from 2004 till um, about two years ago. So like everything, all the ancillary stuff that was connected to it. And oh, wow. I reread... Um, Jonathan Hickman's run, which is probably my favorite Avengers story. Um, yeah, it was fun. Uh, at first, I was just like, I don't know why I just kept going. But after a while, I was just like, I like this notion, even though it doesn't always work. Because uh, there is that soap opera element of it where there is no real end. But I do like this sort of, as it keeps going, there's this big, it feels like a world and a history. And it's fun to see how things connect sometimes and how some authors pull out connections that you wouldn't expect uh, and force things to go into different directions and learn about new characters and seeing them try things that don't always work and sometimes they do and, and lots of great art and all that. So it's it's been pretty fun. I'm going to read up until I'm caught up completely in the digital Marvel thing. Wow. Yeah, uh, it's a lot of comics, <laughs> um, but it, it's been fun. It's been 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 pretty fun uh and then you know i've been reading a decent amount of books uh and still watching lots of movies what about you i was doing a lot of comfort tv uh i did rewatch the last airbender which is really a lot of fun uh i'm in the second season of the legend of korra now which i'd only seen the first season when it initially aired um the legend of korra being the sequel series to the last airbender um I kind of had to pump the brakes on it just because uh, I had sort of forgotten that the big bad of that first season was um, this charismatic populist who is essentially stoking a race war. <laughs> I was like, eh, I'm reading enough about this IRL. I don't need this in my my kids' martial arts adventure show at the moment. Um, I mean, that said, I mean, you know, they're, the second season is also kind of playing with some ideas that are very close to some simmering real world tension. So, you know, they're, they're picking up what was in the ether and, you know, addressing it in a way that's 
accessible for a younger audience, which is interesting, you know, that the Nickelodeon show would kind of take these big ideas head on like that. Um, I finally finished The Stand. (laughs) (laughs) I think you mentioned that on the show back in April, maybe? (laughs) Well, yeah, I think had, without any spoilers, the end does do a few time jumps, but otherwise I almost read it in real time, which was actually kind of (laughs) of interesting. (laughs) It starts in May and then like goes up to about September, October, and then starts jumping ahead. Mm. But... um, and then some video games. Um, I don't know if I've mentioned Carrion. Mm-mm. Have I talked about that at all? No. You you would love it. Okay. It is, um, it's a it's relatively short, but it's a Metroidvania. Imagine the thing, but you get to play as the thing. Oh, that is so cool. you are this. Yeah, you play as this like gross, gory, like writhing collection of bloody tentacles that just gets bigger and bigger and gets new powers as you consume things but your size can constantly shift and you have different powers depending on what your size is so sometimes you have to like just like sluice off part of your body to get into smaller spaces oh cool it's really fun and um and then the mario 3d all-stars i've been playing super mario sunshine oh cool uh, I, I think I told you, but I've been playing Ori and the Will of the Wisps, which is another Metroidvania-style okay. game. Really similar to Hollow Knight, which I've talked about before. Um, yeah, it's a lot of fun. It's another kind of side-scroller where you're collecting items, power-up kind of things. But it's a beautiful world, and it has an interesting little story where it reveals elements by of the world by talking to uh, characters and whatnot. Uh, and the monsters are pretty cool-looking in it, and... Uh, it's fun. It's definitely not breaking any new ground, but it's the def- it's that type of game that uh, is comforting to me and, and I enjoy quite a bit. I, I, I forgot to ask you, uh, when you when we did our episode on catching up on you know some modern Marvel comics, you read all those on your iPad, correct? Yes, yep. So and and, and we briefly mentioned this off podcast, but ebooks are relatively new to you, or at least you're you you Maybe in the past you kind of looked down on ebooks, and now almost you you now you like ebooks. Is that correct? Or it's not that I looked down on them. I just didn't have. Yeah, that was the, that was, that was I, probably the word wrong wording. Yeah, I um I I did not have a tablet prior to this summer, this past summer. Um, so it was not necessarily not that it wasn't accessible. I could have read something on my phone, or you know, gotten like a cheap e reader or something. I just hadn't, uh, I do like the, uh, you know, the, the sort of ritual and the, those textural things that come with a book, you know, the smell of a new book or even like a, like an old book. Um, and, uh, I've really, especially the last few years, there's just something about really just like wrapping that cover around the spine when you start a new book. It just feels very satisfying. So I was, I was hesitant to you know, move on to the convenience of having all the world's literature just in one gadget that takes up less space than a notebook. Why do you ask? (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Well, uh, (laughs) obviously, uh, you know, uh, not to spoil anything, but we are talking about a book today. um, And I know that um, 
you had texted me with these kind of like, oh, this is a game changer as far as reading the book uh, in ebook form in order to take notes and screenshots for the show. Um, so I was curious if it, you know, how that epiphany kind of came about and all of a sudden like, it, 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 does it make more sense for the show as far as like, you know, how we talk about these things and take notes and whatnot? Is is that maybe part of this sort of like, oh yeah, ebooks are, are, are a viable thing? Yeah, that's totally it. Because I'd read... Um I'd read a couple of, we read all those comics. I read most of them on my, on my iPad. I read, I did read a, a novel over the summer on my iPad. I did read a novel on my iPad over the summer, but for the purpose of the show, I like to take notes. And, uh, a lot of times when we've talked about a book before, you know, especially, you know, like with a movie or a song, you can, oh, I want to talk about this part of the song. I'll just pull it up when we're talking about it or, I'll go to YouTube and see if they have that clip I want to talk about from that movie. Um, so I'd take notes in my notebook with, you know, longhand and I'd, you know, have to write the page and kind of like abbreviate the section I wanted to reference. But then, uh, you know, I got the book we're talking about today, the fifth season from the library. And so I'm like, oh, I can highlight stuff. And first I was just copy and pasting it into notes. And then I realized you could highlight it. And then share it directly to notes and then add in your notes to those notes. And like it suddenly made the workflow of, you know, taking notes and doing the research a lot easier. And uh, it's it's all just fun to like I haven't read a book and taken notes like this in a while. (laughs) Um, So it was just it was just fun to be a little more academic about it and also to have a, a much more streamlined process. So, yes, I think I am a convert for sure. For me, it's always been. I like having books. I like owning books. I like a wall of books as a form of of uh, decoration in a home. I always loved libraries and that look of a full wall of books. And so we have a full mm-hmm. wall of books. But after a while, that gets overwhelming <laughs> where, you know, you have too many books and then you're just like, do I really need all these books? So for me, it's a trying to find that balance of just like, well, I still want to read a lot and as much as I possibly can. Um, but I don't, I can't own all these things. So ebooks has been a way of kind of cutting down on, on, on physical things in the home. But for me, it's also a way of making choices because I have one book queued up on my iPad and I have a physical book. So I'm always bouncing Mm -hmm. back and forth between those. Um, and, and as you know, like I said, I've just read all those comic books, um, to, own all of those uh, would cost me hundreds and hundreds of dollars. Uh, with a subscription service, it's a lot more accessible to read years and years of stories in a matter of a few months. Um, so that accessibility sure. is nice. I do feel like, you know, there's nothing quite like holding a comic book in your hand and seeing the art printed. And um, and same thing with a book, like you said, cracking that spine open and even the smell of older books and stuff. Um, there's definitely like a sense memory involved there. Um, but yeah, uh, I've been a pretty big ebook reader for a while and it is helpful, helpful for the show. Um, I take Mm -hmm. screenshots and like, like you outline stuff and, uh, copy it to notes and all that. So, uh, it is pretty helpful, but, and it's easy to, uh, which was necessary for this book and we might as well get into it. But today we're discussing the fifth season. Uh, by N.K. Jemisin. Uh, this was released in 2015. And to, you know, this book is, is 
uh, it's a sci-fi book, sci-fi fantasy, uh, and it can be tricky at times. And one thing that was helpful is there's a glossary in the back of the book of some of these made-up terms that um, that she created. Uh, and I found myself, you know, every once in a while flipping back to those terms in order to kind of look things up. And that was that was pretty helpful to have that in ebook form where I could just bounce back and forth. Yeah, you um, you had texted me, and I didn't know you. You were like, "Man, it's a good thing there's a glossary in this thing," and I couldn't tell if you were upset that it had a glossary or, or like we're into it. But I th- so before we get too far, this is um, Jason Heller. This is his review of the book for NPR. This is the first paragraph. Mm-hmm. There are two ways to look at the kind of fantasy novels that come with big glossaries at the end. Negatively. They're self-indulgent exercises in building fictional worlds with the author fixating on the sheer quantity and settings and characters to the exclusion of all else. Positively, fantasy novel glossaries help the reader keep track of an intricate clockwork of imaginary peoples, places, and things, and that intricacy actually pays off. What camp do you fall into? I couldn't I couldn't tell <laughs> when you texted me if you were like, I hate glossaries in books or I'm, <laughs> I'm really like excited that they're helping us unpack this world you know i think there's a third kind of reader and i think that's me i think i fall right in the middle uh i do think there are moments in this where um she's creating a world from scratch or at least she's 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 taking our world she's destroying it and then building it back up again with new terms new things and i i feel sometimes that uh and i and this is one thing ref this is one Uh, reference that I had texted to you um, in the book she refers to communities as comms Uh, (laughs) and that almost seems kind of a little too cute for me sometimes because it's just like when you have to learn all these things like what an orogene is um, and you add something on top of that that's something we're already familiar with but you want to kind of rephrase that and obviously she's shortening it so it's not that big of a deal but when you're in the beginning of the book before you learn there's a glossary uh it can be a bit frustrating mm-hmm. uh where, where do you fall on this in this camp i don't mind it i i actually did not know there was a glossary so i was just using the context clues to sort of figure a lot of it out i was about maybe a third of the way into it by the time you brought brought it up um and I didn't reference it, reference it as much. I think I went and just read it all in one chunk. And then at that point, I was far enough in that the 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 phrasing and terminology was so peppered throughout it at that point. Um, and I was familiar with enough of it that I, it, I, I, I didn't have to reference it too much after. But kind of backing up a bit, I feel like we're getting a little ahead of ourselves. You You were wondering why off mic why I chose this book Mm -hmm. Um, and to sort of speak to what you were talking about earlier with you know books as decoration and and having a nice wall of books I I moved my office at home recently and uh, so I had all my books packed up and then unpacked them and put them back up in the shelf and it was in it was through that process that I realized that most if not all of the books I have are written by white men. There are exceptions, like Ursula Le Guin, but still a, a white writer. Um, and with everything that's been happening in sort of larger uh, 
more important conversations this past year. Um, you know, it just got me thinking about uh, my reading habits and you know what what is going into uh, a non-choice. If that makes sense, I don't know that I was deliberately seeking out uh, white male authors, but I think there, you know, that that speaks to one of these, uh, you know, sort of built-in biases that we all have, whether we are aware of it or not. So, I wanted to make an effort to change that with my own reading habits. Uh, so I, I did some research into uh, sci-fi of fantasy uh, written by uh, people of color. Um, Specifically, I was looking for women as well, and uh, and this book came up on a lot of lists. Uh, I was familiar with N.K. Jemisin's name because um, I'm drawing a blank on the new one, but she just had a new book come out earlier in the year uh, that I'd seen pop up on some lists and on some websites I read. Uh, what stuck out about the fifth season is she was the first black writer to win the Hugo Award for Best Novel, um, which is like the award. Uh, for sci-fi and fantasy. And on top of that, she won the award three years in a row for each book in this series, making her the first author to win three consecutive Hugos for a full trilogy. So I was like, great. Uh, you know, th- there's a good ca- there's a <laughs> good chance that this is going to be it's just a good read. Um, and also sort of, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to make an effort to sort of mix up what I'm, what I'm consuming for, for media. And that's, kind of baked into the premise of our show as well. And, you know, the the last few episodes I've been on with you have been kind of easy lifts for me uh, with with two new twins. It's been difficult for me to really, like, dedicate much time to stuff. But now that we're six months in and, and they're they're sort of at a point, like, where we put them down at night and they're they're out until the next morning, I can, I can put a little more mental energy into, uh, you know some blind spots. So that's how I came up with this uh, pitch for this week's episode. When I was reading this, I came to this realization that I haven't really read a lot of these big, dense sci-fi novels. Like I was trying to think if I've ever read any sci-fi that is like this massive world building kind of thing. Um, I've never read Dune. Um, I've never read um, any of the big Isaac Asimov uh, series. Um, I think a lot of my sci-fi has been uh, like Douglas Adams or, um, you know, something super early like uh, The Time Machine or um, H.G. Wells stuff. Uh, Obviously, I've seen a lot of sci-fi movies. I'm I'm a big sci-fi movie fan. So it was interesting reading this. I was just like, I read an interview with her, and I'm jumping a bit ahead, but, uh, you know, this is the first of a trilogy, so I was really nervous about reading too much about it, because I didn't want to spoil anything, so I looked for interviews that came out around uh, the release of this first book, Uh, and I read an interview with her, and she talked about a lot of these tropes that she was playing with for this book, and I was just like, huh. I guess I understand those tropes in the context of movies, but I didn't necessarily place them into the world of literature because I don't typically read 
these type of books. <laughs> I don't know if I have a good reason why, because I've always loved this form. Like I love the Matrix, uh, obviously, which is another strange world that feels uh, deeply personal um, uh, and is weird and maybe kind of over explains itself a bit and is trying to create its own w- rules. Um, so like you'd think something like this would be up my alley and that I'd read more of, but uh, I really haven't. Yeah, I don't I don't think that I've read as much as I've watched. Certainly, I would fall in that same camp. Um, but I, I am always drawn to, you know, uh, we've talked about this a bit before. Uh, good, good science fiction isn't about the future. It's about the present. Uh, good fantasy is not so much about this fan- this new fantastical world as much as it is the one we live in. Um, so, you know, it's it's always sort of, I'm always drawn to exploring the conflicts and conversations that we are living day to day filtered through, you know, this fantastical sort of uh, universe. You know, I don't know if you are listening to this and you have not read the fifth season and are aware of it and interested. Um, we are probably going to spoil it just because of having to talk about what we need to talk about. Um, we will probably give one more heads up, but uh, I just didn't want us to get too far into it mm-hmm. before addressing that. Um, mm-hmm. So this was a really, this is a challenging book right out of the gate because the book is divided into three character points of view. Uh, but the very first one is addressing it's in the second person. Mm-hmm. So it's not it's not written as I was or so-and-so is. It is you are, which is not something you see a lot of. And it's very intimate in a way that's kind of shocking. Um, I, 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 was, I was thrown by that choice up at the top. And I wasn't put off by it, but it was very like, it is it is it is oddly personal, even though, as you were saying, is sort of a barrage of new lingo and and sort of context of this larger world. It's pretty top heavy with kind of just throwing you into it. But then by really actually by using the word you putting you in there. Um, yeah, I, I found that I found that really attractive. And, um, you know, I think I, I think by about halfway through, I really fell in love with this book, but right out of the gate, I was, um, what an intriguing way to sort of literally pull you into a book. I don't know. How did you feel about that? Uh, yeah, I agree. I think it it felt like you mentioned how it was kind of a tricky book to get into at first. And I agree with that. I think that what she does is, um, cause it's not every chapter that is in second person. It kind of alternates between three characters, uh, and we won't spoil anything just yet, but um, these three characters, um, one is in the second person, um, and the other two are in third person. And when it starts off, I think by talking like in the second person, what it does is it creates this it uses the world building as a form of mystery and includes you in that. So 
in a sense, you are trying to figure out what your identity is. Um, and I think that idea is actually pretty, um, I guess, profound. Maybe that's a little too uh, weighty of a word. But I do think that a lot of this book is about that search for who you are. And I think when it comes to questions of, you know, finding out your relation to your your race and your gender and... It's sort of, I mean, it's almost like it, it incentivizes you to buy into that character's search for discovery. Yeah. Um, I, and I had mentioned this in the um, the Ganjin Hess episode, um, which you weren't there for, but a lot of that movie is about losing your culture and how do you define who you are through when you're so defined through culture. And I think by doing this in the second person, it's almost doing the same kind of thing. Like, who are you? Um, who is this character? Um, but uh, it is tricky at first because, you know, it's almost 100 pages before it introduces this other character. And that really threw me because I was like, oh, oh, like we have spent so much time with these other two characters and now you're introducing these two new characters. Um, it, it is a pretty big book. Um, yeah. But it's still, um, I wasn't pre- I wasn't necessarily prepared for that. I mean, it's hard. Like, how are you prepared for any book, really? It teaches you how to sure. read it as you're going. But I do feel like, oh, there are a number of moments that really threw me for a loop. But like you, it did start to all start to come together uh, about halfway through. And I do think ultimately that it's very satisfying uh, when you get to the end. So let's do a, a bit of sort of quick recap or, or setting up. So the fifth sure. season is set in this um, supercontinent called The Stillness. Um, it has an ironic name because this is a, uh, a, a world that is frequently rocked by um, catastrophic earthquakes. Um, the fifth season refers to, you know, this world has a spring, summer, fall, and winter, but every so often there is an earthquake that is so devastating that it it, it um, offsets the, the the climate of the world uh, by introducing a fifth season. Um, it references the uh, uh, you know the season of teeth or the season of acid, and there it makes reference to the 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 dozens of cataclysms that have happened throughout this world's history. There's also a list of the different seasons in the back of the book. Yes, there are two glossaries. Um, the three main characters who whose point of view we are given um, are Essen, who uh, is a woman who, she's the the character who gets the second person chapters. But we also don't, we, are introduced, we also don't know that that character is Essen until a few chapters in. Mm-hmm. But, uh, so Essen, who um, has discovered that her son has been murdered by her husband, who has fled with their daughter, uh, Essen is what's called an origin, which is um, this uh, subsect of people who can control um, the sort of tectonic shifts that happen in this world. All three of the, the, the main characters who were 
seeing this world through our origins. There's uh, Demaya, who is a young girl who is given away by her family to a guardian to be taken to uh, the capital of the world where origins are trained to control and are use their powers to sort of keep uh, keep the seismic balance of the world in check as needed. Um, and then there is uh, Cyanite, who is, um, I'd say in a, like her 20s, she is a sort of um, a rising origin in the fulcrum, which is like the, the training center and sort of like the hub for origins who are sent out to um, do routine, I guess, <laughs> seismic maintenance. Um, <laughs> yeah. She is, she is given, she is, uh, there's like rankings of them from zero to 10 rings. She has four rings. She is, she is, um, assigned to a 10 ring origin to go out and, uh, manage some coral reefs that are blocking a, a seaport in a town, uh, in the country. So, uh, the book alternates through each of their stories. Uh, it is, it is assumed that they're happening at different points in history because Essen's story is introduced after one of these earthquakes that triggers a fifth season has destroyed the capital. And the reason that her son has been murdered by her husband is because she was, she was living with a secret that she was an origin. Origins are seen as other. Um, they're cast out, um, looked down upon. Uh, so she was living with a secret and it turned out that she had passed it on to her children when this big earthquake happens that kicks off this most recent fifth season, her her son inadvertently protected their village or their calm from from the damage of the earthquake, which outed him as an origin, and her, his father beat him to death. And I I believe he was like, you know, really little, like a three or four year old kid. So it was just this sort of reflex that he didn't understand kicked in. Demaya does her her story does not have any suggestion of this cataclysm, so you assume it happened before. Uh, same with Cyanite; it could have happened earlier or later. I think, for all intents and purposes, this is the last spoiler warning we're going to give. <laughs> Maybe we should just talk about it. Sure. Can I give my elevator pitch to people that are on the fence about reading this book? Oh yeah, that's a great idea, actually. Okay. Uh, so here's my elevator pitch if you're uncertain about reading this. Um, it's essentially uh, a post-apocalyptic X-Men if all the X-Men had earthquake powers and Professor X and the teachers at the um, uh, Xavier Academy for Gifted Youngsters were all uh, really mean to their to their students and hated them. Fair enough. Yeah, that's my, that's my pitch. So if that sounds interesting to yeah. you, you should, you should read this book. How these three stories come together is that they're all the same person. Yeah. Demaya is given away from her, taken away from her family who don't want her. She grows up to become Cyanite, which is the name she gives herself when she gets her first ring. Essen is Cyanite after she has sort of, has been believed to be dead and has tried to start her life over by hiding who she really is. And, and and all that ties into the second person in the idea that she keeps choosing new names. She's choosing identities for herself. She's trying to define who she is and not have 
anyone else define who she is for her. Um, especially because, as you had stated, orogenes are kind of looked down upon. There's even a derogatory term for them, um, which is roga. Um, it's used as if, I mean, let's not beat around the bush. It is essentially like the N-word uh, in this world. Um, yeah, exactly. It's a racial, racial epithet. But there's even elements where the person that uh, Sayanite uh, is traveling with, his name is Alabaster, and he uses the term roga on himself as an orogene. So he's trying to reclaim this word. Um, mm-hmm. So there's a lot of real world parallels there. Um, even in the idea that in this uh, post-apocalyptic world, I guess, um, where because it feels like the real world parallel is obviously climate change and how, and they even allude to that in, in this where um, they keep referring to the earth as evil earth because they say at one point that because we had so we had treated the earth so poorly that it had turned on us. Uh, and that's where uh, all these kind of earthquakes are coming from. Uh, or at least that's their sort of belief. And in that idea, too, where, you know, climate change directly affects people of color worse than it does um, people of of wealth and, and white people. And, and that ties into this as well with the orogenes being the ones that are forced to protect everybody and are looked down upon. The parallels to cultural and racial disparity are are, are all, all over this book. You know, um, uh, there the origins are viewed as other. Uh, there is this idea that, um, you know, they're, unless they are coming from the fulcrum with, you know, for the express purpose of doing a job, no one is too concerned with a kind of like vigilant vigilante or sort of mob justice when, when one is outed as an origin. Um, there is this idea sort of drilled into these trained origins that, you know, when you're out there, you know, you represent all of us, you know, so you have to behave, you know, this idea that like, you know, in, in a sort of post nine 11 world, anytime there was, uh, some, some sort of, you know, instance of violence where it was just instigated by, you know, if, if the, the perpetrators happened to be Muslim, there is a sort of knee jerk expectation that like, Someone, you know, we need some uh, some representative of of the local mosque to apologize on behalf. You know, there's always that sort of expectation that one represents all, which is fucking horrible. And uh, you know, event, and it, it, they do flat out say, you know, that they are essentially slaves. There is um, so this is an argument that Cianite um, is having with. Alabaster, who is the 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 ten ring origin she's been um, apprenticed to, uh, she says we aren't human. He says yes, we are. His voice turns fierce. I don't give a shit what something something council of big important farts decreed, or how the geomests classify things, or any of that. That we're not human is just the lie they tell themselves, so they don't have to feel bad about how they treat us. This too is something all ragas know. Only alabaster is vulgar enough to say it aloud. So there is this sort of, um, 
yeah, the systemic racism towards origins. Um, there's another passage that gets into this idea of, you know, they have stone lore, which is sort of like their, uh, religious text or, or sort of their shared history. And the stone lore says that origins aren't people. And Alabaster has the audacity to suggest that, you know, maybe the people who keep the stone lore have been changing it over time and adding or getting rid of what does and doesn't work for them. You know, this sort of uh, history is written by the victors kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, you know, going back to the fulcrum, this is the school, I guess you can call it a school. Um, but it seems like even within that, when they're all origins in there, they're pitted against each other for survival. Uh, and even um, uh, cyanite or cyanite um, says, friends do not exist. The fulcrum is not a school. Grits are not children. Origins are not people. Weapons have no need of friends. Um, so this is kind of like this mantra that she tells herself in the school in order to survive because um, she's mistreated there. She's bullied. So she kind of has to use her wits in order to to gain any footing because she realizes that if she doesn't survive the school then she doesn't survive at all um which is not a, not a mm -hmm. good position to be put in no absolutely not and you know for her to have been a child so young and brought into that yeah and it's really cutthroat there is a lot of sort of um you know there is a chapter where uh she thinks she does make a friend and then that friend kind of betrays her and then you know through this whole it almost seems like it's going to be kind of like a, like like a light, like schoolyard revenge kind of thing. But then it turns out that the kid who did something mean to her has been being abused by instructors, and it gets really just awful. And like the 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 sort of uh, meat grinder of atrocities that these children are subjected to. So that they can keep a world that doesn't give a fuck about them safe is really, yeah, it's really unsettling. So um, is it, I'm trying to think if there's any other big uh, vocab words we need to address. Guardians? Uh, so the guardians are sort of bonded to individual students at the fulcrum. Um, guardians have this sort of odd connection to them because guardians are... Guardians are the children of two origins, but don't have the same powers that their parents did. They are also kind of an other, but they are almost born into this role of uh, overseer or or almost like a, almost like a police force to keep the origins in line. Their only real powers. There are some of them that can like make an origins body implode, <laughs> which is like this weird threat. And then like when you actually read that happening, it's pretty disgusting and upsetting. Cyanite's uh, guardian uh, is the one that picks her up um, when uh, she's referred to as Demaya in the beginning of the book. Um, and he, the way he talks to her is sort of, he doesn't talk down to her, but he, it's very plain. Uh, and he, tells her in the guise of I'm here to help you and protect you and love you he kind of I don't know like uses that as a way for like rough love in a sense of like oh hey like 
all the shitty things that I'm going to do to you and all the shitty things that are going to happen to you in the fulcrum are, are for a reason. But as the book progresses, you realize that he's maybe not as, um, he doesn't really care about her as much as he, he lets on in the beginning of the book. Yeah. I mean, it's a very, I mean, the power dynamic, he is an adult who breaks her hand and tells her it's for her own good. It's, um, you know, it's really like he's grooming her for something. It is, it never becomes, um, a sexually abusive relationship, but it is, it is deeply emotionally abusive. I mean, at one point she says like, he's the only person I can love and she's terrified of him. Um, and, and all of them sort of have this relationship to a guardian that even carries through into their adult life that they, they know that this person, despite the fact that they can do these amazing things, that there is always this one person who like will not hesitate to, to break them because they deserve it and it's for their own good. So let's, I guess let's re- let's get into the back half of the book. We had mentioned that Sinite and Alabaster arrive in the town to do some, some, some work. Um, they're, you know, farmed out by the fulcrum for this calm that they, they show up in. Again, that's a community. Uh, and, and the idea that you get in the book that uh, communities don't always last very long. There are a lot of things that are involved um, with making sure that they survive. And, and and typically they don't really last many seasons, um, but they hire uh, Sinai and uh, Alabaster to go in and, and do some clearing work. And in the process, uh, you know, due to um, bigotry, um, Alabaster is poisoned. Uh, Sinai has to go and take care of this work. Um, and she gives some advice and they don't really listen to her and they ask her to go forward. In the process of using her powers, she reveals um, this uh, obelisk, which is has um, one of the, uh, whatchamacallit, the stone, um, the stone eaters, stone eaters frozen inside the obelisk. Um, it catches everybody off guard. Right. Uh, so these, this world has these sort of like crystal obelisks that are just kind of floating around. And nobody knows where they came from and nobody knows what they're for. But there are are several clues dropped throughout the story about how um, people in particular origins like are always looking down and never looking up. Um, It's just, you know, these floating obelisks are just what they are. Um, They've always been there. No one really pays them any attention. When she uh, makes this one come up out from under the um, sort of the the sediment and the seafloor, she ends up triggering um, a massive uh, volcano that destroys this calm that she's been sent to help. What Alabaster knows and that what she is kind of starting to understand because he has his powers work a little differently. And it turns out he can draw power from these obelisks. Um, and that's what she ended up doing is she sort of activated this thing. From there, they both wake up on an island. Um, Islands aren't typically considered very safe because they're, you know, the other earthquakes are one big threat, but tsunamis are another one, especially for coastal towns. But for people living on an Island, the idea is you'll either be swallowed up by a volcano that's formed from an earthquake, or you'll just be washed out by a tsunami. So they end up on this Island with a, a calm of pirates who, uh, you know, a couple of them are origins, but they're not trained. And 
they know how to use their powers in so much as they can keep their island safe. But um, suddenly they're in a uh, they're in a group of people who view them differently. You know, there is no uh, there is no prejudice towards them. They're just they're I mean, the the leaders of the community are origins. We also get into a bit more of the sort of sexual politics of this world as well. We do get a little bit of so one of the things that Cyanite is assigned to do when she's brought under Alabaster's wing um, is she is mandated to have sex and procreate with him. And at first, this almost feels like a kind of, you know, concubine situation, like she's put into this life of forced sexual servitude. Uh, but it's not one side. I mean, he is also being put into this life. He's not happy about it either. They are being forced to mate together uh, to create more powerful origins. Uh, pretty clearly, she realizes, oh, he doesn't even like <laughs> women. Yeah. Like, this, like th- none of this situation is okay for either of us. They have a pretty antagonistic relationship. Um, I think she's maybe begrudgingly looks up to him because he is so confident um, in his view of the world. Uh, and, but at the same time, she's put off by him. Uh, and that kind of carries through for the, the, the bulk of the book. But once they get to that island, they meet up with the leader of that community. And his, his name is um, Inan. Um, and and I, I should state here too that like a lot of these names are pretty strange. And even the way uh, we've we may pronounce things differently. Because <laughs> um, even while you're saying cyanide, I think when I was reading, I always pronounced it uh, senite. But anyway, so there's, there's a lot of words is what I'm getting at. A lot of new words. Um, but anyway, once they show up at um, this 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 island, Inan kind of takes cyanite and alabaster in and... Um, we quickly realize that they there's an attraction between all three of them. So they enter into this um, relationship uh, as a group. Willingly. <laughs> yeah, willingly. Uh, even though there are elements of it where Sinai is just like, oh, like it's strange. I don't want to be here with Alabaster, but um, it's really hot when Inan and Alabaster are going at it. <laughs> so that turns her on. Um, right. And it kind of it skips ahead a, a bit in time, and we uh, they have a, a child together. The three of them, they're living together. They're raising the child uh, as a unit. Uh, what's the child's name? Do you remember? Coradum something. Yeah, Coron or Coru, C O U C O R U. That might be an abbreviation of his full name. Yeah, uh, Corundum. They call they him call Coru. Coru for yeah. short. So they have this child together, uh, and 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 Sinite, um is kind of not ambivalent about the child, but it doesn't connect to it the same way that the other two do. Yeah. Alabaster in particular, um, is quite affectionate towards the child. And, um, you know, while he is content to be isolated from the fulcrum and on this Island with, you know, with his two lovers and now his child cyanide is drawn back. She wants to join Anon on the raids. So they are pirates. They'll, They'll uh, raid coastal comms and ships for what they need. He finally concedes uh, much to Alabaster's uh, protests. She's going to go out on a raid with them, you know, and she she kind of 
her suggestion is I can help you. I can manipulate the water around us to make a fog. What ends up happening is she does that. People see them and then Anon sort of kind of like other people have before have commanded her to use her powers in ways she may not want to, in this case, to, to kill the people on the ship because they can't, they can't know about the island or else the mainland's going to come for them. The mainland, of course, does notice and comes for them. They go back to, she, she requests to go back to the, the, that community where she had her, um, you know, where she, she caused the volcano to destroy the community because she wants to kind of see the outcome of that. And when she's there, she kind of, does she stop the volcano? She uses her powers to kind of fix things, essentially. So it's no longer this kind of active volcano. Yeah. Yeah. She she believes that there is a guardian there who witnessed what happened and then knows because they the Fulcrum, they, they assume that Fulcrum thought they had died. And then this confirms that they're still alive. And then the Fulcrum comes after them. And there's this big showdown on the island where, um, you know, she loses most of what she's come to love. Um, the community is destroyed. And it's her guardian that is the one that's in charge of all this and trying to come to get her. Mm -hmm. uh, and is impressed with her powers, yeah. but still wants to control her. And Sinai, uh, no, Alabaster tries to save them in the process. Um, it seems like he gets, uh, it seems like he dies in that moment by trying to protect them. Yeah, so, yeah, we have mentioned the Stone Eaters, who are this, you know, truly other race of people if if the origins are just humans with powers the stone eaters appear as like marble statues you know their teeth are diamonds when they talk their mouths don't move it's just a sound that kind of echoes through their 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 chests and they they kind of you mentioned x-men they kind of they kind of like have like kitty pride powers they can mm -hmm. like phase through rock um which is how they get to the island it's a I think, right? Uh, the stone yeah. eaters sort of bring them there. A stone eater brings them there. And that appears to happen at the end. Uh, Alabaster is sort of like, appears to be like sinking into the rock. And then in the end, um, uh, Inan is murdered by um, the fulcrum. Um, and uh, Sinai escapes with her son. Uh, and then there's a moment where she has to choose a life of servitude with the fulcrum a life um of, of slavery for her and for her son who's already shown uh, that he's he's uh proficient in these origin powers by helping to contain their island unknowingly mm -hmm. and making that hard choice um she decides to kill her son Right. Well, one thing we haven't talked about is one of the first things Alabaster shows her is that throughout the world, there are these outposts called nodes where Cyanite knows that origins are sent there to sort of, um, yeah, it's, it's like a network of, think of like weather stations. And the purpose of these stations is to keep tremors and, and seismic activity in check. She knows that origins go there she knows that they're rarely if ever heard from again but she doesn't really understand what's there what alabaster shows her is that origins sent there are effectively lobotomized and drugged and sort of hooked up to this 
station in such a way that they are, you know, they're, they're, they're basically vegetables, they're comatose and just their, their reflexive powers are being used to keep like the major earthquakes in check. <laughs> like exactly kind of. Yeah. And, um, you know, the, the one that he shows her is one of his children. So it's not even just that their child would be, you know, brought up and trained by the fulcrum. There is this fear that he is so powerful that like, they're just going to strap him into one of those things. They're effectively going to kill him and just use his lifeless body as a tool. It was, it was pretty shocking though. Did, were, were, did that, was that uh, like, how did you react to that? To which part? The reveal of what the nodes are or when she had to kill her son? No, when she had to kill her son. I mean, you get to know her so well that I'm, I wasn't surprised yeah. that that's what she did. But it, yeah, it's, it's certainly upsetting. And um, in the end, she gets away. And um, when we discover that future version of her is Isan, who had settled down again and had a normal life, except for no one knew she was an orogene. And, you know, we had discussed this earlier where her husband kills their child. So she, throughout the course of the book, is looking for her husband and her missing daughter. Uh, and they also come upon a community where it seems like they they kind of make it seem like um, that everyone there is is wanted and serves a purpose. Um, and mm-hmm. she meets up with... Um, uh, Ho, who is uh we find out is a stone eater, but he's a boy. Yeah, he's he's a bit he's a bit different. He 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 certainly does not look like a typical person, but um he seems to be a little more uh, fleshy than a stone eater. He's got this strange little bundle of things that he keeps eating, and you know she she in the end she realizes oh I've never seen him eat oh I've never actually noticed him breathing. And they say he's a boy, but uh, I guess for stone eaters, that doesn't really mean anything. He could be very old. Um, and she also travels, uh, she meets up with, uh, on the way to this uh, community, she meets up with Tonki, who, um, uh, who is transgender. Uh, and it's really great because it's so frank and, and they, don't, they don't really make a deal out of it at all. No, there is a, there is a, a lot of diversity in this book, we've talked about um, the the uh, you know s- there's no sort of quote unquote normal sexual orientation in this in this world. It seems that um, it, it seems to be m- much more open in that regard. Um, yeah, Tonki is trans, and there are a couple of other references that make you think that um, gender identity is not necessarily. Um, the same from one com to the next. Uh, and then the, just the, um, the, the, the sort of ethnic description of these characters is all very different. Uh, Alabaster described as so black, he's almost blue. Cyanite, Essen, uh, Diama, um, uh, is sort of, uh, light, uh, you know, uh, a lighter skinned, uh, person of color. You know, there's a lot of discussion about, uh, the texture of hair. Um, uh, people in the Arctic are probably closer to what we would call uh, white. Um, some some of the cities sort of uh, reflect maybe um, you know some Pacific Island uh, type of uh, skin complexion and stuff. And uh, yes, yeah, it's it's it is 
contrary to a lot of science fiction and fantasy, which is predominantly uh, Eurocentric or white, um, it is a much more colorful world. Yeah, so they, this this com is actually underground. It's sort of like in a geode. It's made up of crystals, and it's very the the idea is that the whole thing runs on orogeny. Like the the more origins that are there, the more efficiently the thing. You know, it's some like some old, um, I don't know, some sort of old uh, system that keeps the air circulating and the water clean and all this stuff. But it's it's built around the idea that uh, origins lived and worked here and and made it work. We don't know much about it. Um, but yeah, there, uh, eventually she is told that there's somebody who wants to see her. And that somebody turns out to be alabaster, um, who, uh, is dying. He seems to be sort of, some of his limbs seem to be made of stone. Now, uh, it turns out that he, he was the one who initiated the earthquake that set Essen off on her journey and that kicked off this recent fifth season. She, he destroyed um, uh, Eumenes, which is the sort of capital city. This is the, the oldest calm in the world that has sort of uh, survived the most earthquakes. How, how, do you, how did you read that? <laughs> I'm just... Are you laughing because I'm I laughing said it because than the we, way you... we Everything we pronounce completely differently. <laughs> I mean, it, there's, no, <laughs> there's, there's no kind of like um, phonetical spelling in the glossary or anything like that. I pronounce it Yemenis, I right, guess, right. and I pronounce it or- Origin. Sure, I don't. I mean, who, I don't know. We should have done the audio book. <laughs> there you go. We should have done the audio book. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, but yeah, so um, I, I think I had mentioned. You know, uh, there are these little breadcrumbs throughout the book about how the people of this world are always looking down. They're not looking up. I think there's a quote here about. Um, hold on. Who misses what they have never, ever even imagined? That would not be human nature. How fortunate then that there are more people in this world than just humankind. So like, that's one instance. Um, All this is sort of to speak to as Alabaster is dying and he's like, oh, you know, so you know that you can tap into the power of these obelisks that are orbiting or just like hovering around. Uh, There seems to be one link to each of them. And the last line of the book is, have you ever heard of something called a moon? <laughs> yeah. Um, which is kind of like, it's like, oh, yeah. I mean, like, this, this is, um, thinking back, there, there's, at the beginning, there's a reference to, like, sun and stars and a, a vague, like, you know, but uh, no one knows that they're missing something they're not talking about or some, something to that effect. But, yeah, like, you know, this is a world without a moon, but apparently maybe there used to be one, and maybe that's where these obelisks come from. So it sort of it ends on a, a, a bit of a cliffhanger. You know, we have sort of used these catastrophes and, like, this series of, of um, apocalypses of the end of worlds to suggest that they're may have been a di- more worlds out there before. So that's sort of where we leave off and um okay, so there's a couple of big questions that I have for you. And w- we've already talked about how uh Demaya, Isan and Sinai are the same. We never talked about um our reactions to f- to learning that. So so when you f- when you found that out, what how did you feel about that? Did you like that uh, reveal? I was into it. Yeah. 
I did. I did like the reveal. Um, did you see it coming? I, I did. There were two clues. One was as cyanite. There was something. It may have been maybe when she was brought to the island or something, and she said like it. You know this. You know it reminded me of home, like a, like an old warm blanket. And there was a lot of real estate given in uh, Demaya's introduction about this blanket that her mother had given her from her grandmother and the way it smelled and the way it made her feel. Um, and then later, there was a point where Tonky was about to say Essen's name and she like said, and you know, as it's written, it's S and then a dash and then Essen. And I was like, oh, wait a minute, maybe you know that I'd already kind of started to suspect it. And that was another clue like, Oh, this person knows her from before. And Essen hadn't figured it out yet. Tonky turns out to have been a, a member of, um, you know, one of the, the sort of upper casts of society, uh, the leadership cast, um, who, when she was at the, you know, who, who she visited Demaya when Demaya was in the fulcrum and uh, talked about these mysteries and blah, blah, blah. But then like, has been tracking her her entire life and it presents herself to her as this, as Tonky, as this new identity she's um, trying to hide behind. There was also this moment where, uh, I believe it was Sinite, where it, there's one paragraph that just slips into second person. Um, I can't remember where it was. And I thought I had it, uh, I had like a screensaver or I had saved that, but uh, there was one little moment. I was like, oh, that's really curious. Um, because mm-hmm. that, that I had kind of like once it's revealed, I was like, oh yeah, okay, yeah, I kind of like you had kind of picked up on it a bit. I thought it kind of worked again, mostly thematically because it is that sort of like trying to define yourself beyond being an orgy, but beyond being part of the fulcrum, um, beyond how other people define you. So I thought that it she did a good job of connecting those thematically. It is kind of cute in a sense because uh, it is. You, it's not really revealed until like the back half of the book, right? Yeah, and like and but and you know, like you said, thematically, this is a world full of beginnings and endings. Um, you know, every time there's a fifth season comes and goes, the world is uh, effectively remade and changed. So uh, you know, kind of like we, you know, we weren't who we were as children or as we were as teenagers, as young adults or whatever. You know, she is. Um, yeah, that, that all kind of worked for me. Now the, um, the stone eaters are kind of left very vague. Yeah. Like we were saying, um, you, you, <laughs> you called him Ho. I read it as Hoa. Um, <laughs> it's, it's spelled but yeah, H-O-A. You know, yeah. Yeah. So the stone eaters are different from people and Hoa is different from the other stone eaters. Uh, and they're left kind of up in the air. Um, but the, you know, uh, alabaster at the beginning, before you know, he's alabaster when he's triggering this massive earthquake is there with a stone eater, um, likely the one that brought them to the Island and also the one who is present with him at the end, almost like between the stone eater with alabaster. And then the way Hoa has been so connected to, um, Essen, it's almost like, um, it's it's kind of like the relationship that they have with their guardians, but it's it's still unclear. It's almost like this, um, you know, symbiotic 
you know, is it kind of like a vampire familiar kind of relationship yeah. thing? Um, I don't know. I would imagine it's going to be explained a bit in the rest of the book. So, I mean, with the cliffhanger, have you ever heard of a moon? Mm-hmm. Like, what are your feelings at the end of this book? Do you, are you interested in seeing where it goes? How did you feel about the book as a whole? Uh, yeah, I, I enjoyed it. Uh, I think at first I was maybe resistant to it. Uh, again, I, we, were, we were kind of going initially texting about the glossary and, and the world building and all that stuff. And I do think that there are some things like uh, the glossary at the the second glossary at the end that talks about the different seasons. And we didn't talk about this, but that at the end of each chapter, there's a quote from like the books of this world, you know, like their, their history, I guess. And I kind of glaze my eyes at a lot of that stuff. Uh, I like the character mm-hmm. stuff a lot. Uh, I, you know, I think reading this though, I've been trying to figure out for myself how I like, certain aspects of this type of storytelling in certain formats and it doesn't always connect in other formats i think sometimes in something like this it comes down to not necessarily craftsmanship but my brain and how i process things and how i retain things and that's something that i've maybe struggled with i guess i don't know like and this has been maybe a through line with the our show where it's easy for me to to talk about movies um, where they're an hour and a half or two hours and where I read a book over a month's time, maybe I don't recall it as well. And I don't know if that bodes well for me reading stories like this. Yeah, I I can understand that. I think, you know, I I think in the way that when we do talk about films here, you talk a lot about, um, you know, I think you, you see the subtext of the way a shot is framed where I don't always, um, I think, so maybe it's, maybe it's just a, uh, it could be a visual thing. Yeah. I mean, maybe it's a visual thing. Yeah. Cause I know, I know that you like when we get into this sort of, you know, whether it's science fiction or some sort of, um, heightened reality in film or TV that looks lived in that you like, you can tell through the production design that like everything's deliberate. the, you know, the, 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 the parking meters and Blade Runner have so much like gadgets on them because it's supposed to suggest they just kept adding new technology as they went. Yeah. Like it just enriches the world through all that texture and stuff. And for me, that's what the glossary does. And that's what the, you know, the weird lingo at the, in the first chapter of the book does. It sort of, um, forces me to be like, okay, this is not, this is not the world I know. Uh, this is just, this is what it is. And the first couple of chapters, it's going to be a bit of a workout to, to sort of piece together what it all means. But then once, you know, once you lock in and then, then your brain can start crafting the texture of the world. Um, that's always super rewarding for me. Uh, you mentioned Dune at the beginning and like that, I mean, you know, I remember I read that at a point where I was thinking of sci-fi in more like Star Trek terms and Dune is almost like, uh, you know, swords and sorcery in space. It's, it's very different. And the, the sort of visual language of that world is, I remember being difficult for me to sort of catch up with, but, um, yeah, I, I always appreciate, uh, the challenge that comes with a, a piece of fiction like this. It really, um, 
has you have to has you rethinking you know your your notions of reality and stuff while also being so i mean this is um hardly subtle in the the real world no. sort of conflict and and discussion it's pulling from that's something i wanted to ask you too um cuz it did work for me in this context um this line that i'm about to read is is like it's very apparent what her intentions are freedom means we get to control what we do now no one else um so what i wanted to ask you is like at what point does this sort of didactic metaphor stop working for you and 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 so let me let me pull some 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 examples some real world examples uh, recently, uh, there's a new Watchmen TV show, which we've talked about in the show. And I thought it did a really good job of, of, of making something kind of obvious as far as in terms of race and, and police brutality and making that interesting and palatable. Whereas the new Lovecraft Country show, I don't know if it balances it as well um, for me. Um, so, um, so that's one question I have for you. Like, and one thing that while I was reading this is like, why does this work for me in this context and other contexts where it's where they make that subtext, the text thud- thunderingly obvious why it won't, doesn't work? I think, you know, I don't necessarily like this word, but I think what sells it for me is an authenticity. And I, I'm I'm kind of glad that you brought up Lovecraft Country because did you read the book? I haven't read the book. So the book was written by um, a white guy. Mm-hmm. The biggest difference is that the TV show definitely seems to be drawing from authentic experiences. Um, the showrunner is a black woman. Obviously, the the cast are all black and have their own experiences to pull from. Jordan Peele is involved. Um, so what? And I, there's a. a you know, the I remember reading a quote from the author talking about, you know, uh, as he was writing it, he would think about, and I'm I'm kind of like paraphrasing because I don't remember the exact quote. He was he was thinking in terms of, um, if it were me, is this a situation where I would recognize racism? If it were the characters, is this a situation where they would be in fear of their lives? So it was almost the racial horrors of the book read as if they were from an arm's length, which is not to say like. I didn't think the book was racist enough. You know what, you know what I yep. mean? But like it definitely, there was that, there was that distance from the character's experience versus the author's lived experience. And I feel like the show is able to sort of tap into that, that lived experience in a way that the book couldn't. Sure. And I, and I think for me, that's where, you know, that's a difference between something coming off as, um, uh, you know, kind of preaching to the choir or, or lectury. Like I didn't ever think anything here was lectury. This, this felt, you know, um, this felt like this is a person speaking from their, their heart and their experience and what they were seeing in the world around them and how those events directly impacted her and, people like her i mean i I, like you i tried to avoid too many interviews because a lot of them were kind of after the third book came out yeah uh but i I did listen to one where she talks about you know a lot of you know watching footage of what was happening in ferguson a few years ago and like that directly influencing 
what she was putting into the work for the fifth season. Um, so yeah, you know, uh, I don't know if this is a good counterpoint, but on paper, I probably agree with a person like Michael Moore, but I feel like his art is kind of obnoxious. Yeah. <laughs> I don't yeah, know I if, that, if that quite tracks, but you know what I mean? Yeah. Oh no, definitely. Yeah. I think you feel that a lot with, um, with Saturday Night Live lately where, it's so like it's 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 politics are so toothless you know it helps to soften a lot of things for a broader audience and then it'll do something like after the election have kate mckinnon dressed up as hillary clinton playing hallelujah and it just felt so tacky and and missing the point completely uh and you feel that with a lot of like especially liberal politics where it's just like hey guys if we can just talk about the fly let's talk about the fly on mike pence's head where sometimes that feels like okay we're done we need to address the real problems here and we get caught up in these things and like we got him we got him this time um and maybe we've gone too far of <laughs> you know left <laughs> with this con- you know too far away from the original thing um yeah, I know. I, I, and that's one thing I've been trying to figure out because I do feel sometimes, especially with reading a lot of movie reviews, where they say that like, oh, well, this, this is too, um, you know, the uh, the metaphor is obvious, and I don't know if that's always a problem. Like, I, you know, I think the metaphor for Baba Duke is is pretty obvious. You know, it's about mm-hmm. guilt. It's about survivor's remorse. Uh, it's, and it's about that kind of weight that she feels. Um, and I think that's what makes it powerful, in the, uh, you know, in that instance. Uh, and that's something sure. I've been trying to figure out for myself. You know, where is that line? Where is it where it doesn't mm-hmm. work? I think my issues with Lovecraft Country, the show, is that I think sometimes it's like racial politics and awareness and monsters. And they don't always connect very well. Uh, mm-hmm. but again, like the show's not done yet. So I don't, I want to reserve judgment till I kind of see where they go with it. I haven't read the book. Yeah. I, you know, and like in this case, you know, we're talking about a, a fantastical world with like floating crystals and earthquake superheroes and, <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, you know, pirates and, uh, it's weird, like stone people, and like that all worked. Yeah. Those were all fun ideas. Those were all cool ideas. It was a, like an interesting, different world. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I mean, you, you kind of called it sci-fi at the top. I, I'm not sure what I would call it. Sci-fi fantasy, it's, it's, probably sci-fi fantasy kind of thing, I guess. I mean, she, she calls it sci-fi. Yeah. I mean, it's got a foot in each. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, at the end of the day too, it's like, um, you know, this sort of the subtext and metaphor aside, uh, I I enjoyed reading about these characters in this world and and I'm 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 pretty eager to to finish the the series. I was I will say up front that I I'm not crazy about this form of storytelling where in like the very one of the very first chapters they're like I need to find my husband and my daughter and no, that's for the sequel. And I kind of get disappointed when I see that in movies, when I see that in television, where, okay, that's not actually the story we're telling. And I know she set off at the beginning to tell a trilogy. Um, she wanted to tell a big, massive story like that. 
there's a part of me that doesn't particularly care for that kind of storytelling. I like to these complete things, even if there is a trilogy mm-hmm. there, you know? Because um, I was by the end of the book, I was like, oh, we're not even, that's not even a thing. We're not even going to, we don't even know anything about the daughter. And when I read the synopsis yeah. for the second book, I was just like, oh, it's about the daughter. <laughs> okay. So, um, right. well, at least to her credit, she had a three year plan and it's done. <laughs> yeah. and it's, you know, it's not like 30 years from now. Yeah. She's like, and I'm working on the TV show. Yeah. Oh, for sure. Um, and again, that could just be a person. It's the same thing with like modern Netflix shows where it's just like, this didn't need to be 10 episodes all over an hour, et cetera, et cetera. And, and, and they don't craft each episode to be its own thing. Um, but I, I am, I am going to continue reading. I, you know, I liked it, uh, quite a bit. Um, I will not read it right away <laughs> i think I'll, I'll i'll give it a beat um which could be a problem because again as i discussed with my memory and how it works with books in particular um i may have to have a little refresher on this one um you already picked up the second one though correct yeah i grabbed it from the library so did you start it or um, yeah i uh no because i had um <laughs> i had an ebook hold come in okay so i wanted to <laughs> and i had i was texting you and like with literally minutes left in the book, I couldn't renew it because somebody else was waiting for it. And I had, I had to go to the library to get the physical copy just to read like the last 20 pages. (laughs) Um, I got some, some recommendations for you if, um, yeah. So, um, so I have a recommendation for you and then sort of, um, reinforcing of why I chose this book in the first place. So, um, for you, I'm going to recommend, uh, Parable of the Sower and Parable of the Talents, written by Octavia Butler. Okay. Uh, I was assigned these in college, and I don't want to say that now is like a like the perfect time to reread them, but there, it is. Um, the world we're living in is eerily similar. It is a science fiction book set in the 2020s. The main character uh, is a woman who has this. Um, condition that gives her like a visceral sense of empathy if she sees someone experience pain she experiences it but this is a wor- she lives in um los angeles it is a world where um racial and economic disparity is really like stretched to its limit there is a lot of um society feels like it's 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 in a state of collapse uh, she lives in a sort of walled off community and when um uh, that community is attacked and destroyed and her family is killed. She is sort of sets out on the road. Um, and, and we're in a world where, um, you know, uh, religious and, um, racial minorities are really kind of in danger to be out in the open, out in the open road. (laughs) It is so close to home that in the second one, which really deals with this rising, sense of Christian fundamentalism, uh, there is a, uh, either a sitting president or a member of this religious cult running for president whose <laughs> campaign slogan is make America great again. <laughs> uh, this was written 25 years ago. So, uh. um, so it, those two books are great. Um, I know Amazon prime has the patternist series, which is another group of books she wrote, wrote. Uh, she was the first science fiction author to, win the MacArthur Genius Grant, which uh, N.K. Jemisin uh, 
just announced that she has won as well. Mm-hmm. So yeah, and when you when you look at um, uh, you know lists of um, black women who write sci-fi and fantasy, Octavia Butler comes up quite a bit. Beyond that, I'm going to continue to sort of try to do, to diversify my reading habits. I just finished reading. Uh, yeah, I just read uh, There There, written by Tommy Orange, who is um, uh, Cheyenne and Arapaho. And I've got a couple other books on hold um, from the library, um, written by other um, black and indigenous men and women. So, Cool. Um, so, yeah. so I want to recommend to you this movie from 1983 called Born in Flames, um, mm-hmm. and is directed by Lizzie Borden. Um, not that Lizzie Borden. <laughs> the? Okay. The Lizzie Borden. Um no, she came up in kind of like the punk rock scene, you know, um, and I, so I think she just kind of took on like a pseudonym kind of thing. But um, it is a, a dystopian future uh, where there's a socialist government and it's essentially this world where men are controlling women. Um, it's such a fascinating and unique movie. I've never seen anything quite like it. Um the cast is stacked uh, with mostly women and uh, women of color. Um, and it's about how these men are, you know, oppressing them. Um, uh, and a lot of the movie is sort of cinema verite where it's, it almost feels like a documentary where they put them in these situations and, and ask them to sort of improvise around the scenario. And because... It's so, so, so low budget. There's really no difference between, you know, this future world and 1983 where when it was filmed. And so therefore, it kind of has a lot of real world parallels uh, to about sexism and misogyny and control over women and uh, women of color. Um, It's one of the weirdest uh movies i've seen in a while and i it's it's such an interesting fascinating watch and the performances because they are sort of improvised in some ways feel so authentic and weird and alive um yeah it's really cool born in flames cool yeah that sounds great and then i wanted to recommend this book called the ballad of black tom uh which is written by victor lavelle uh and this is similar in the sense of uh lovecraft country where He's taking a lot of Lovecraft stuff and um, repurposing it and uh, uh, removing some of those racist qualities of, of Lovecraft. Um, probably more authentic than the book version of, of Lovecraft Country is um, Victor LaVale as a, a black man. Um, and, you know, it's about this character who is uh, a musician and he kind of gets roped up in uh, some uh, nasty monster stuff (laughs) it's really fun it's a quick read um i really enjoyed it especially with the conversation around lovecraft country i felt uh, 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 this is um in a similar vein and 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 really good do we know what we're talking about next time we do wow that hasn't happened in a while (laughs) no we've been winging it uh we're talking about kentucky route zero great I know nothing about this game. <laughs> Me neither. I, you know, I've read a lot of good things. It looks really cool. It's this indie game that was released. Uh, it was a couple of years ago, I think, or last year, maybe. Well, I think, I think last year it finished. I think it's sort of been a rolling 
I, I think it, I think it's been close to ten years since the first chunk of it came out. Oh wow! I, d- um, I didn't know that. Yeah. Yeah, I am excited because I, I all I do know about it is it is it is sort of considered a contemporary version of the point and click adventure game, which listeners of this show might know that I have quite a fondness for and yeah. have subjected you to previously. So. <laughs> yeah, visually it looks really cool because it kind of mm-hmm. has these really great environments, but it's all really um, simplified. Kind of minimalist. Yeah. yeah, and but the coloring, the colors are, are really great, gorgeous. Um, really good sense of design. So I'm excited to play it and, and talk about it. We figured, hey, with all these new video game systems coming out, fuck it, we're going to play a game from a few years ago. <laughs> yeah, perfect. Yeah. That, that's our speed here on, on uh, What Did We Miss? Awesome. Great. Well, I'm looking forward to right. it. See you then. Take care. Thanks for listening to another episode of What Did We Miss? You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook at What Did We Miss? And you can send us an email at whatdidwemisspod at gmail.com. And thanks, as always, to the What Cheer Writers Club in downtown Providence, Rhode Island. You can learn more about them at whatcheerclub.org. And you can follow them on Twitter and Instagram at whatcheerclub.